Fab Lab Podcast, Episode 73. Interview with Jeffrey Gran of the Countertop Factory. Welcome to the Fab Lab, the stone industry's only podcast dedicated exclusively to the business side of your stone shop, where we focus on improving operations inside the business so we can experience more life outside of it. So let's get down to business. Welcome back to another episode of the Fab Lab Podcast. I'm Wesley Rice, your co-host, and our host today is, and always... Aaron Crowley? <laughs> that sounded strange. Really? Wes, great to be with you on the uh, podcast. I'm so uh, glad to be here today. Yeah, it's great to be back. <laughs> we got to change things up every now and then just to keep things fresh, even though we're recording once again on a Friday. <laughs> we change up the intro, give you guys a little bit of uh, variety as uh, we start another podcast. And so this is going to be a good one, isn't it? One of the top ones for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So today, ladies and gentlemen, fans of the Fab Lab podcast, we interviewed Jeffrey Grant of the Countertop Factory. Amazing fabricator out of Chicago, and oh my gosh, did I learn a lot. There's a, a very famous coach that I follow that I'm learning from, read his, a couple of his books. Really, really respect this individual a lot, and he's got a great quote. He says, if you're the most interesting person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> Meaning, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're not learning anything. Mm-hmm. So he would advise, and I completely agree, that you got to spend time with people who know more than you. It doesn't do you any good to be the smartest person in the room. And that's how I felt during this interview. Uh, Jeffrey Grant was definitely the smartest guy on the podcast in today's <laughs> interview. Wow, what, um, what a fantastic opportunity to learn from somebody who has just had amazing success in this industry. Did not come from this industry. Now, I don't want to ruin the, the interview by getting into it before we actually run it, but we just want to we want to tee it up. This isn't, like you said, this is definitely one of the top episodes of the Fab Lab podcast, and there is so much to learn from this episode. But before we get to that, a word from our sponsor this week, sponsor of the Fab Lab podcast is the Stone Fabricators Alliance, the SFA, this fantastic peer-to-peer fabrication community that is committed to helping each other. And so Wes, why don't you read another testimonial? I am a third generation to this business, and it is amazing how there are still things that we haven't seen. It's almost guaranteed that just when you think you've seen it all, there's something else to discover, and the SFA is there for all of it. I only recently joined this year, and there's no question I will be a member for life. That says a lot. Somebody that's multi-generational has Mm -hmm. been doing this their entire life and is willing to acknowledge that they don't know everything or that tomorrow they're going to be confronted with something that they don't know, and to have this community... This huge membership, the, the, the Facebook group is what, like six or 7,000 members now? I think it's over 7,000. It, it's growing every day, so it's hard to keep up, but it is a fantastic resource. And if you're not on there, if you're on Facebook, it's easy to find. Go to StoneFabricatorsAlliance.com. That's the name of the forum group. You just uh, click to add. There's a couple questions just to qualify you, and they'll admit you in. And if you're not on there, you can still also join them on StoneFabricatorsLines.com. There's a sign-up. Uh, you can go through a process to get on there. Take a look at that, and they'll get you taken care of. Yeah, just just think about that for a second. You're all alone. You're isolated. You're in a city, you know, a region where you're fabricating, and you got competitors that you may not feel comfortable reaching out to. And yet here is this membership, here is this organization, here's this group of fabricators that is absolutely open-minded, open arms, willing to invite anybody that wants to participate and share. Right there, available, over Facebook, over their online forum, 7,000 other fabricators. I mean, think about that for a second, the amazing resource that that is. And the experience of those guys bringing to the table is very deep. Yeah, so take it from this person that we just read from, we're not going to read his name. 
multi-generational fabricator that will be a member for life because of that dynamic in the industry and the benefit that it is. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not a member of the SFA, the Stone Fabricators Alliance, make sure you go to stonefabricatorsalliance.com or check out their Facebook group. So, back to our episode today, the interview with Jeffrey Graham. I don't think we have much else to say to set this up other than listen up. If you open your mind, you're going to learn a lot. So enjoy. Jeffrey, welcome to the Fab Lab podcast. What a privilege to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, you know, I met you at our shop a year or two ago, but the first time we really talked was down at the ISFA conference last year. And I will never forget the, the seminar or the, the workshop that you put on. And, and I, I remember thinking at that point, oh, this guy knows so much. I'd love to interview him someday on the podcast. And so I, we've been talking about it for a long time. So I just want to tell you what a privilege and an honor it is to have you on the podcast with Wes and I. And I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I, I've listened to a lot of the Fab Lab uh, podcasts and Really great stuff. I think it's awesome for the fabricator to learn more about our industry. So I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, fantastic. Well, you are with the Countertop Factory. You mentioned that. You're also Fifth Gear Technologies and Ignite Consulting Group. You're a busy guy. I, I am a busy guy, but I'll tell you, I am passionate about this industry. And so I was mentioning to somebody earlier that I, I feel like I'm working more hours today than I did when I started my business, but I'm having so much fun. It's great. Uh, it comes through. It's, and I think it's definitely going to come through on the, on the call today. So real quick, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the conversation, our discussion about sales and, and the stone industry, want to just run a couple of rapid fire questions past you just to get to know you a little bit better. So number one, what's the latest book on business that you've read and how's it impacted you? Well, it's funny you say that. I actually read your book uh, actually after we met at the ISFA conference and I loved it. Uh, but the most recent book uh, I read, actually I reread, was The Goal by Eliyahu Goldratt, mm. which is about the theory of constraints, right? And how to improve throughput or productivity in your shop while also reducing inventory and reducing expenses. It's, we, we subscribe to that theory of constraints and it, it's really phenomenal stuff. Fantastic. I've read that. That had a powerful impact on, uh, on my business as well. It, it, was, it was really instrumental in kind of shifting my mindset from being a, you know, a quote unquote fabricator uh, to being more of a manufacturer and, and realizing that uh, there was a huge difference between those two. So uh, very interesting. Fantastic. So what's your favorite recreational activity outside of work? It is golf. It, it is definitely golf because that game is impossible to master. But, but it's an incredible challenge, really more times mental than physical. Hmm. So I try to play as much as I can. Oh, interesting. I, I, I didn't think there was anything more frustrating than running a fab shop until I started to try and play <laughs> golf and realized there actually was. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's what uh, it is. That's funny. So I quit. I gave up. Uh, so you mentioned you're doing a lot of traveling. So you've been a lot of places. If you could snap your fingers and be anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Aruba. One happy island. Uh, We've been going there for 12 years, and it's kind of our – it's our happy place. I love that. I love that island. Oh, fantastic. And last question. So what is the biggest win outside of work and the biggest win inside of work in the last 30 days? Okay, so uh, outside of work, my son – I also have a daughter, but my son is a senior in high school. And a couple of weeks ago, he kind of pushed the button uh, on what they call the common app these days. You don't have to, you don't have to submit uh, uh, handwritten applications anymore. So 
he submitted his button, and the first eight ex- uh, letters he got back from colleges were all acceptances. Wow. And so he's riding nice. high right now, and so that's pretty cool. So now we're starting to do college visits. Wow. Uh, which makes me feel old, although I'm not, but it makes me feel old. <laughs> and inside the business, uh, October was our single largest revenue month in the history of our company. Wow. But more importantly, was our single largest profit month in our 14-plus year history. Huh. And so what that tells me is that my team, my company, is really doing all the right things to make this a great business. And mm-hmm. so for that, pretty awesome. That is fantastic. That's a perfect segue into today's discussion. You're talking about you know, growing sales and the correlation between growing sales and growing profits, which, which isn't always an automatic, you know, outcome. Uh, Sometimes it can be the exact opposite. And so the fact that you've been able to pull both of those off simultaneously uh, just, just increases my, my gratitude for you coming on and sharing, you know, sharing what you're doing. And that was what I took away from your talk down in uh, at the ISFA conference last year was that um, unlike a lot of us who, you know, started at the trade level, sweeping floors, worked up, fabricating, installing. You, you were a sales guy and a business guy that got into the business. And, uh, and so I just, I'm so looking forward to hearing that perspective from you today and how you're, uh, you know, how you're, how you're having those big wins in your company. So uh, what did you do before you, you started the countertop factory? Well, it was uh, completely unrelated. So I was in the healthcare sector. Uh, I was a consultant working with large hospitals. And then ultimately, uh, I started a medical supply business. And um, it's funny because while I would deal with certain situations today in the countertop business, and sometimes we get frustrated, right? This is a tough business to be in. You know, you're dealing with material that, that sometimes can be suspect. You're dealing with conditions that sometimes can be unrealistic. And so sometimes while this industry is incredibly challenging, I do remind myself that it's still better than dealing with the government and trying to deal with Medicare and Medicaid and trying to get paid, right? So, uh, but because that was my old world, right? Was providing medical supplies and equipment to uh, the long-term care and nursing home industry. And while it was incredibly fulfilling personally, that also was a challenging, challenging business. So what, what, what was the, the catalyst for making a change from that? And, and why did you pick of all the industries you could have gone into with that background? Why, uh, why countertops? So one of my closest friends growing up, uh, Bill Hoyer, who is my current um, uh, business partner today, you know, we went to high school together. We uh, lived together after college and started our respective careers. And he moved to Cincinnati. I started my healthcare company. And we had always talked about at some point we'd get into business together. And the way we got into the, to the countdown business was a little bit strange. Uh, we had a few friends in the industry. And when we were talking about that we wanted to start a new career, they said, hey, why don't you do countertops? Now, we didn't know anything about countertops, but we spent about a year analyzing the industry. And there were a few things that became really uh, clear to us. One, man, there's a lot of fabricators. There's about 10,000 fabricators in the U.S. alone. And there needs to be a way to differentiate yourself. And I think a lot of fabricators don't do that. Mm. Two, the industry was very fragmented and industry experience is pretty local. You know, there's a lot of second generation owners or folks that went to work for a fab shop, didn't like how that company operated and then started their own facility. In fact, that's what you did, Aaron, right? Yep. I mean, that's how you started. <laughs> right? Exactly. And, and so, and then I think the third thing that we realized is, Man, there is so much opportunity in this particular industry because it's still maturing. 
Mm. Right. And it still doesn't know what it wants to be when it grows up. So, you know, that's kind of how we started. And we opened up our doors July 1st of 2005. Uh, we had a case of Corian. We had a van. It wasn't a creepy van, but it was a van. <laughs> and we had a really, and we had a really small warehouse space. And we had nothing else other than we had tremendous confidence and a drive to go make a difference in an industry. Hmm. And that's really kind of how we started. Ah, very interesting. Very interesting. So if that, you started with Corian, what was the transition into uh, to Stone and Quartz? So we knew that from day one, Chicago is the third largest market in the country, that it was a little bit more sophisticated. So we knew that we were going to have to offer Stone and Quartz. But as we started interviewing other shops and kind of looking around, we realized that many shops were under capacity and undercapitalized, right? And so they had all this machinery, but didn't know how to feed it from a sales side. Mm. So from day one, we partnered with other fabricators to do our fabrication. But what we quickly realized in a very short period of time was that we were so good on the sales side that we outgrew about four shops in about nine months. And then that was our cattle to say, okay, mm. let's open up the stone shop. So mm. it, it took us about a year and then we were doing self-fab of everything. Wow. So you, so you mentioned the sales aspect of it. And that was what I remembered from your presentation was your sales background, which, which is which most interesting to me uh, of, of all the topics we could discuss today. Do you mind sharing, you know, do you feel comfortable sharing those growth, those numbers in terms of where you started and where you guys are at today and, and, and what oh, that sure. sales focus did? Yeah, of course. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about, I think everybody in our industry talks about square feet. So I think that's a, that's a common denominator for everybody. So when we started in July 1st, you know, we literally started from scratch. And so we didn't even have any fabricators, right? And so we were going out selling projects and then figuring out how to go fabricate it. Um, and every year we've had double digit growth. Mm. And I think one of the things that makes us unique is that we've always had a sales force. And I think a lot of companies, not just in our industry, but small companies in general, I think rely too much on inbound calls and referrals. And we've decided that we were always going to make and create our own opportunities. So if you fast forward over the 14 and a half years, we now fabricate 3,000 square feet a day. We have a 65,000 square foot facility. Hmm. We run uh, two shifts, 20 hours a day, wow. six days a week. And we have 150 really dedicated and, and uh, absolutely amazing employees um, that have helped us get here uh, today. We have 14 managers that have an average tenure with us of eight and a half years. Wow. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, your employees are your single most important asset. Yeah. And uh, we are incredibly lucky to have some amazing folks. Yeah. So when you, when you mentioned that, I know for myself, you know, those who have been in the business for, for 25 years, been in business for 21. And I, I hear those growth numbers and I go, I know sales is my, and has always been probably the biggest limiting factor for, for us reaching our potential. And, you know, of those 10,000 fabricators, you know, if you look at statistics, I think like 94% of companies do less than a million dollars in sales every year. And, and so can you, can you convert that scale or that, that accomplishment that you've had and say, how do those same principles that you've used to get you there, um, how can those be applied at, you know, the other end of the spectrum? And that's not to diminish the other end of the spectrum, but, but I know there's application there. And I'd love to hear your take on that. I think um, <clears throat> I think what ends up happening is that fabricators are okay at selling, but more often I th actually think that they're order takers. Mm -hmm. So a customer comes in to your facility, 
and they talk to you about countertops. They give you a drawing or they give you a cabinet layout. And I think fabricators, generally speaking, large and small, are very good about talking to the customer about form and function and then putting them into the right product. But that's where most fabricators stop. And what they fail to recognize is that there's more to that project than just countertops. And, and so I, I, I think that fabricators don't do themselves enough justice. And I feel like if they don't think of themselves as salespeople, then they're really not. And so you got to take off that order taker hat and you've got to put on the, hey, I'm a salesperson hat, right? And, and I think that's where a lot of fabricators kind of fall short. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of fabricators see themselves as fabricators, as craftsmen, you know, that are, that are, that are producing a product as opposed to, and I've never thought of myself as a salesperson. I've, I've told my team, I'm a terrible salesperson, but what you're saying is, is the catalyst for your company's just amazing growth has been being focused on sales and, and, and so not only taking orders, but, but, you know, growing the sales and growing the size of those jobs. Um, yeah, so and, how, and, and in, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to no, cut off, but in fact, we, we describe ourselves as a sales and marketing company that happens to manufacture and install countertops. Hmm. That is how we tell everybody. When somebody says, what do you do? I said, oh, I own a sales and marketing company, and here are the things that I do. We never talk about that we're a fabricator. That's uh, such a different perspective. Completely different. Yeah. So, so audience, the Fab Lab podcast, take that in for a second. You know, the, the way we view ourselves a lot of times completely shapes the decisions that we make. And in a lot of cases can limit, you know, what we're capable of because we see ourselves in a particular light. I'm a fabricator. I'm a craftsman. But if you own a business and have a lease and have employees, you're a businessman and, and a business is sustained by sales. And so I, I want to just let that sink in. Um, when, when I look to you and I say, gosh, I've been doing this for 21 years. And, and, and it's not to compare, just to compare. We got different businesses, different locations and different, you know, different goals. But at the same time, there are fundamental ways of looking at the business that will have a big outcome on or a big impact on the outcome. And, and so I just am, I, I'm trying to soak that up right now. We're a sales and marketing company that happens to make countertops is a very profound statement. How, how does that permeate the rest of the company? I mean, is it just salespeople that are selling? So we have a mentality here that everybody sells, you know, and sometimes you are selling a, a physical product or item, but a lot of times you are selling the company, you're selling yourself, you're selling everything that we've put into this. So I think a lot of fabricators do themselves an, uh, a disservice because they don't talk enough about all the training that they do or all the com safety compliance that they do or all the equipment that they buy. And so when you're talking about selling to a customer, none of us win when, when we chase price down the rat hole. And so if there was one general comment that I can make to our industry, and that would be, you need to price appropriately because there's so many fabricators that what they've done is they've created a job for themselves, mm -hmm. but they aren't creating wealth for themselves. And those are two big different things. Mm -hmm. And in order to create wealth for yourself, which as a business owner, your number one goal is to make as much money as possible. Now, I don't want people to cringe when they listen to this podcast going, that's just, a, that's just a greedy sentiment. It isn't. Because if you want to take care of your employees, which is by far and away your number one asset, you have to make money, mm -hmm. right? Because how else are you going to afford to hire the right employees and pay them the right amount and have the right benefits, right? And then your, your second most important asset are your customers. Well, if you want to provide best-in-class service and best-in-class product to your customers, got to hire the right people, got to have the right facilities, got to have the right operations, the right equipment, all those things cost money. 
And when we don't charge enough, right? You don't make enough, you can't do the right things. Yep. And I think I, I would say at least at the local level, when you, you, you get a sense of what other people are charging and you get a sense of what people's reputations are. And, and you talk to customers that have dealt with other companies and they think that they're doing bad business. They think that they're, and it isn't that it's that they're to your point, they're not charging enough to deliver the service that the customer expects. It's math. And, and if you can't, it's, af- it's math. You, you, if you can't afford to service it and, and deliver you're doing yourself a terrible disservice. That, that's very interesting. You're, you're, you're a job versus creating wealth. Is there anything else you know, that you can elaborate on on that topic? Is it really? And that's what we really talk about here on, the, on the, the podcast. It's the business side of your stone shop. And so much focus is placed on the equipment in our industry. And, and these, this idea of being a fabrication company as opposed to focusing on the business, the sales, the finances, and ultimately the net income that you are generating. And, and so I'd love to hear more on that, uh, on that topic from you. Sure. Well, look, there, there is this, there is this phrase that says, you know, try not to work in your business, try to work on your business. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the disadvantages that people thought that I and my business partner had when we started this company was that we didn't have any fabrication experience. <laughs> the reality is I feel like that's been the biggest positive impact for us because I've never had the, the idea or the inclination to go in the back and work on a machine or go in the back and fabricate a top or go and install uh, porcelain shower walls in my house, primarily because I don't have the talent to do that. But what I am classically trained in, right, is I'm a classically trained sales and marketing uh, expert. I happen to have a very strong operational background and I get finance. And so for me, I travel all the time. I probably travel right now three out of four weeks of every month. And I've been to well over, you know, 150 shops across the country. And I've probably talked to over 500 fabricator owners um, just because of the other businesses that that I'm involved in that you mentioned, Fifth Gear Technologies uh, and Ignite Consulting Group. And what I always find amazing is that the, the fabricators, the business owners that are making the most money, are the ones that understand the business aspects of it. Hmm. A lot of times I'll talk to, you know, a business owner and I'll ask them when's the last time they went into their financial software and looked up their P&L. And sometimes I get great responses like, hey, I was in there yesterday. And sometimes I get very scary responses like, well, my CPA sends it to me once every six months. And you already mentioned it. We're business owners. And so you've got to take off your fabrication hat. You've got to put on your business hat and say, hey, how am I going to do the best for my employees and my company? And that's sometimes hard to do. Yeah. I heard a, 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 an astonishing tale, if you will, from somebody who I'm going to be as vague as I possibly can, but who finances equipment and told me you would not, you, you'd be shocked at how many companies are buying equipment and do not have monthly financial statements produced. They're, they're, they're running these businesses without any view of the financial realities that, uh, you know, that, that are underway, whether they like it or not. And um, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, that's scary. I think there's another part of that is that then you've got fabricators that buy equipment and yet they don't know then what the output of that equipment can be. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to go ahead and make an investment in the business. I applaud that. I think that's terrific. And truthfully, with the labor shortage that exists today, and the labor shortage that's going to continue to be a problem for years to come, you need to invest in technology. But then you need to understand what that technology can do for you. 
right? So if you go ahead and you get a CNC because you were doing everything by hand, and then you didn't either, right, condense your labor staff or reappropriate people to other areas, then all you did was add an expensive piece of machinery and more money. Yep. So you've got to make everything work for you. Yeah. You know, we were talking a little bit about <clears throat> having fabricators make more money and not trying to race to the bottom. You know, a hot topic for all of us uh, over the past 18 months was this whole tariff on Chinese quartz. And I think there's still a lot of fabricators that still aren't quite sure what happened. And so if I can just take a moment. Yeah, absolutely. 52%. All right. So 52% of the quartz that was coming into the United States was manufactured in China. Okay. And quartz obviously has had a massive rise in popularity, right? Not only in the United States, but, but across the world. I mean, I, I know my business alone, you know, where I used to cut maybe 20% quartz, I'm now cutting 70% quartz. Wow. Okay. But what happened is that this Chinese quartz started infiltrating the United States and it came in at low cost. And while that's great, and if a fabricator or a business owner would have said, hey, instead of paying $15 a square foot, I'm now going to pay eight, but I'm still going to charge the amount that I was when I was paying 15, then we call that margin grab. That's a positive thing. You just made more money. Right. Unfortunately, what happened, because we have a lot of fabricators that maybe aren't as well versed on the business side of things, they went ahead and they bought material costs at a lower price and then lowered their price to their customer. And while their gross profit percentage may have been higher, you can't pay your bills or your employees on a percentage. You need real dollars. And so the actual <laughs> dollars that they made was less. Right. So it actually was bad for our industry. Hmm. And so it's really interesting to see what's happening and what will continue to happen. You know, there are some more tariffs potentially on the table right now with hmm. India and Turkey. We're going to start hearing some information about that uh, in November. Um, so another yeah. reason to keep, really keep healthy margins. Yeah, and and we have, of course we have to stop short of somehow uh, co you know collusions a hot topic in politics today. But you, we we can't all agree to raise our prices, but we can agree that we need to raise our prices. If every other cost is going up, the cost of quartz isn't the only thing that's going up. Everything is going up, and and yet the absolutely pressure seems to continue. And, and and so again, audience of the Fab Lab podcast. You may be thinking to yourself, there's no way the pressure's too great. I, have, I, I can't raise my prices. I've got to lower my prices. What, what would you say to that, Jeffrey? I, I would say, unfortunately, that's foolish thinking, right? And so every owner, right, every business is facing, right, this ever-increasing demand, right, of what we call increase, increasing wages. Again, going back to the theory, and you have to subscribe to this theory, but that your employees are your number one asset. We, we certainly do, and Aaron, I know you do as well. So we've got to take care of them. So you've got this pressure of increasing wages all the time. Plus, you can't find enough people. So you, you're, you're, you're pulling talent that may be a little bit overqualified. And then you also have this, this pressure of, of declining margins. And you have to fight that. And you have to make sure that you understand the value that you're providing. If you're just a commodity shop, if you're just providing, you know, rectangles and squares with an eased edge and you're not providing any other value, then it's hard to sell on price. Mm -hmm. But the consumer, when they're purchasing, right, really focuses on three things. Three things. One is the quality of the product. Two is the quality of the service before, during, and after the sale. And then the third item is price. But you can only get best in class in two out of those three. So as a fabricator, if you can provide high quality products 
And if you can provide phenomenal or what we call world-class customer service, then you've kind of taken price out of the equation because customers will pay for that. Mm-hmm. For example, Aaron, do you order anything on Amazon? Uh, uh, yeah, and it's not just me. It's my wife and I think all my kids are on there too. I see the statement. <laughs> and so why do you – give me the main reason why you order on Amazon. Uh, it's convenience. It's convenience. Yep. Amazon has made it easy for you to buy for them. And you know what doesn't really play into a factor anymore is price. Hmm. And so as fabricators, we've got to learn how to make it easy for our customers to buy from us. Yeah. Right? And, and, and when your customer walks in your shop, they're writing you this love letter. They're saying, Aaron, tell me stuff. I want to spend money with you. Mm-hmm. And this is what we were talking about a little bit earlier. You know, this is the difference between just selling a countertop, right? And then selling more to that customer. Yeah, and I just want to emphasize something that you just said. You, you, you made the comment that people are, they're, they're, they're willing to spend money on things that they value. And yet I think a lot of owners are in this, they, they've been beaten into this mindset that, that that's not the case, or they have a hard time imagining that people are actually willing to open their wallet up and spend more money because there, there seems to be so much pricing pressure. When what you may be saying is that, uh, no, that may not actually be the case. And so, you know, we talk a lot about beliefs and mindsets here on the Fab Lab podcast, and this is one of them. You've got, to, you've got to accept this fact from Jeffrey that people are actually willing to spend more than, than the, 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 the low, you know, bargain basement square foot price lost leader ad that was put out there. Are you telling me that there are customers out there willing to spend more than that? That is what I'm telling you. And what I'm telling you is, most fabricators leave money on the table. Hmm. I think what ends up happening is that sometimes people start selling with what we call with their own wallet. So just because you as a salesperson or you as a customer service person or you as an owner of a small fab shop, just because you might not go spend $15,000 on that kitchen doesn't mean that that customer who's in your showroom wouldn't. And so our job as business owners is to make sure that we're selling and showing options to the customers right? Number one, that we know that we can produce. But unless you have a designer with you, or unless that customer maybe is watching HGTV all the time, they might not know all the things that are available to them. Our job is to show them those things. We're the expert. I had a conversation with a custom builder uh, once, and we went to go, and you might have experienced this before, we went to go measure, and it was a farm sink, and the farm sink wasn't installed. Well, you know, we couldn't go finish the measure. And our team reaches out to the builder and I happen to know him. So he calls me and he says, I don't understand. I've been building houses for 30 years. I can't believe you can't measure without the farm sink installed. And I said, oh, okay, I get it. So how many houses do you build a year? So I built 10 houses a year. I said, wow, you've built over 300 houses. That's over 300 kitchens. I get it. You know, I do 11,000 kitchens a year. And so I just want you to know that you need to trust me that I know what I'm doing. I'm the expert of the countertop guy. And when it comes to building the house, you're the absolute expert. And at that point he said, you know what? You're right. I apologize for bothering your time. I'll make sure it's installed. And I think customers want to deal with experts, right? Customers want to know that we know what we're doing. And when you can establish that from the get-go, then they're going to open up their wallets and they're going to buy from you. And that's not saying that we want to sell them things that they shouldn't get. But we want to sell them things that they need to make their investment. Countops are investment. Mm-hmm. Those countops will last longer, right, than that customer truthfully will probably own that house if they want it to be. Right. But we need them. We need to make sure that we're selling them 
options and upgrades, right, to protect that investment. So that what comes to mind, and we're just having a conversation here, and so I didn't, I didn't, you know, run this past you beforehand. So I'll just ask you: Can I share the conversation you and I had? I don't know here a couple of months ago, because this was a, and you might know where I'm going with this, but you talked to so many fabricators, you might have forgotten our conversation. I haven't forgotten. So do I have your permission to uh, <laughs> to, uh, to share that? Absolutely. Okay. So I'm dealing with this problem. And somebody challenges me, Aaron, are you telling me that nobody else in your industry has the answer to this problem? And I said, uh, immediately, I said, I actually, I know the person that has the answer to this problem that I cannot seem to solve on my own. And it was you, based on our previous, you know, conversations and this other individual then challenged me. So do you have too much pride to actually contact this individual and admit to them that you don't know the answer to this question or the, the, to solve this problem. I said, I think I do. Anyway, so to this point that you're starting to make here, the add-ons and the additional, uh, when you described the math of what I, where I think you're going with this, it, it was one of the most astonishing revelations to me that I, that I have experienced. And, and so I want to just kind of tee that up as, as we're talking about, you know, we're talking a lot about sales getting the sale, getting the customer in there, closing the sale, doing the rectangles, and then moving on. You're talking about, okay, the rectangles are the basis by which we then sell. And, and so we call it upselling in our shop. That's the phrase that we've used. We've, I just, in that conversation, which I could, I could tell in great detail if you wanted me to, uh, but when you showed me the difference between adding $250 to every job versus going out and figuring out how to sell 50 more jobs that I then have to have. I have to not only find them, I got my cost of client acquisition, I got to schedule it, I got to contract it, I got to go template it in the whole nine yards. The cost of doing that is, you know, upwards of 90% of the sale. And, and, and so can I, can I just turn the conversation that direction and let you run with it? Because that, that was an amazing revelation to me. Aaron, I love hearing myself talk, so I'd be happy. To, I'd be happy to talk about it. So, what you talked about, what you just described, you call upselling, and we actually coined this term called hot sauce, and and we called it hot sauce because hot sauce, everybody knows, is something that you pour on, and it adds that it makes that little bit extra that makes something special. And so, I'll give you an example. I think most fabricators recognize that you sell the countertop, and that is kind of the basic. That's the vehicle, so to speak. And then you can sell them a sink or you can sell them a faucet or maybe even a tear out of their existing countertops. Those are some add-ons. And I think those are pretty basic. But unfortunately, most fabricators stop there. But there's so many other upgrades. There's so many other offerings that are available. And when you can offer those things to the customers, there's several things that happen. One, you're now providing solutions for that customer. You're giving them what we call that Amazon experience because you're making it easy for them to buy countertops through you, right? If you're now offering these extras or this hot sauce and your competitors aren't, then guess what? You now have a yet another leg up on your competitor and you know what? You're making it easy. So now price isn't so much of an issue. So those to me are two huge wins. And then the third win, which is probably the biggest, is that that add-on sale, that hot sauce sale, in many cases has no cost of goods and has a direct impact on your bottom line. And we've been selling hot sauce for about eight years now, and it has transformed our profit of our business. 
and you did a great job of describing it. So here's a simple example for, let's just say, a, a typical fabricator that does one to four kitchens a day. If you just sold one hot sauce item a day at an average of $250, and we're going to assume that that particular hot sauce item had no cost of goods, that fabricator is going to generate an extra $50,000 a year in net profit, earnings, EBITDA, whatever you want to call it. But along with that, right, you've also allowed your staff to sell. So whether it's your salesperson, whether it's an office staff or field measures. And by the way, 50% of our hot sauce is sold by our field measures, mm. which I think most fabricators don't view as a sales outlet. You get to pay them some extra money. So now we talked about that ever challenging, you know, we're facing increasing wages. You get to start feeding off of that. And that $50,000 pure earnings. Now, if you have a fabricator that's generating 5% EBITDA in their business, that $50,000 is worth a million dollars in new business. Mm-hmm. And you said it very eloquently. You didn't, need the, you didn't need any more sales and marketing, right? You didn't need another machine. You didn't need an install crew. Heck, you didn't even need another customer. You right. just had to sell to the existing customer base that you have. And of all the things that we've done, and we're a technology company, we're fully automated, selling hot sauce has been the single largest, biggest impact on our business. That, that's got to soak in. And that may be a, a brand new concept that, uh, that, that, that some folks in the audience haven't really had time to sort of digest. Because when you and I were having that conversation, I'm looking, I go, I, I, I get the concept, but the mat, it can't be that. I did the calculation like three times on my calculator to go, no, it can't be. $250 on every job cannot translate into that much net income, which like you're saying, has no cost of goods in many cases. Whereas to generate that equivalent is is, is so overwhelming to undertake, you know, the other way of generating it. Um, You you just got to let that sink in that adding $250 on every job, what are some things that you know that that are, that are that are worth two hundred and fifty dollars that you're selling regularly that don't have any cost of goods, i.e., needing more material, needing more trips to the job site to measure, uh, expenses that would erode that two hundred and fifty dollars going to the bottom line. Well, I, so let me let me start here. Eighty percent of every fabricator's number one edge profile or number one edge profile is an eased edge, right? And when you ask fabricators why 80% of their edges are eased, their answer is, well, it's the one I offer for free. And so the problem is you're working with the customer. You finally figured out the material and the color. You've negotiated price, right? So you've, you've met your margins. The customer's happy because it hits their budget. And then the customer says, oh, great, let's talk about edge. And at that point, that salesperson traditionally takes off that sales hat, automatically puts on the, hey, I'm not going to lose my order hat, and says, well, that east edge is free. Great, I'll take it. But the reality is so many fabricators either have, you know, handheld routers, they have CNC routers, or they have very talented fabricators that can do a lot of different edges. But we just don't offer it. So just by showing a customer, hey, here's all the different edges we have, right? And here's what they look like on actual countertops. All of a sudden, it opens up the eyes and the minds and truthfully, the wallets of customers. Mm-hmm. But to give you a specific example, we did this analysis and we figured out that 50% of our service calls, you know, typically after two plus years of a customer having their countertops installed is us going back out and fixing chips in the sink cutout. Huh. The reality is that in a typical sink cutout, it's a 90 degree edge. 
and it's a hard surface. And so you have plates and pots and pans, and you know maybe you've got a, 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 big, a big thing of, of spaghetti with water and it's heavy, and you go to put it in the sink, and it accidentally hits that 90-degree corner, and you get a chip. And so while our team is very talented, and we'll go out and we'll fix that for you, it becomes expensive. And so what we realize is how do we avoid that? And so we now have a, a hot sauce item that we call the chip minimizer, right? And it's exactly how it sounds. We put a low profile edge on that sink cutout. And so now instead of a 90 degree, you've got this low profile and nothing hits it. And it has been our number one seller for the past two years. Hmm. And it didn't cost us anything to do every time we put one on. Well, and I could, and I'll just follow up with saying you, you told me the same thing when, when you and I were, were having this conversation and I was still going, there's no way it cannot possibly generate that many dollars. I went back to our sales department and said, we're going to start selling a thing called a chip minimizer. And they're like, a what? And of course we've been selling countertops for a while. They're like, never heard of it. And I said, it's, we're putting a five ace radius on the undermount sink counter before we even had a sample in the showroom before our staff even really had seen one, they'd heard indirectly, we're gonna start selling this thing called a chip minimizer, just to see if what Jeffrey's saying is true. We had sold and contracted a couple of them and then our production manager was going, what's a chip minimizer? It's on the work order, it's already paid for. It, it, was, it was amazing. And, and we, so I just want to validate everything that you said. I took what you said at face value, I implemented it immediately and exactly what you're saying is true. In fact. I think that's just the tip of the iceberg, Bill. It's not just because it makes practical sense. I think what you're saying generally is absolutely true. Why stop with the chip minimizer? Right. No, that's exactly right. And in fact, this has been so successful for us, and we realized that other fabricators needed help. So we actually built the software. Uh, it's the hot sauce selling software. And what it does is it allows fabricators to see all the different offerings that are available. And it's all the content and all the pictures and customers can kind of scroll through and put things in the shopping cart. So you make it enjoyable. It keeps all the offerings front and center, right, for all your staff. So they're always reminded to talk about it. And it's customizable because what Fabricator might do in uh, Portland is going to be different than somebody does in Chicago, which would be different than somebody does in the East Coast. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a huge win for us. This industry is tough. I mean, let's just be honest. It's we're dealing with uh, material and, and site conditions, all things we talked about, and fabrication, delivery, and install, and it's hard to make that money. And so we have to find other ways right, to grow that bottom line. Yeah. Top line is for ego. You know, <laughs> bottom line is where you pay your bills. Yeah, and, and I just want to touch on something you just said at the beginning, and you, you, you reinforced it here, talking about how many different people are able to reinforce this. It's not just your salespeople who are selling. Now it's everybody. It's everybody that has interaction with that client has the opportunity and the potential to actually affect that net income. Screw the top line. It's all about the bottom line. Gosh, if you're a, you know, you have, you, you have a receptionist in the counter that doesn't consider herself a salesperson who's sitting there waiting for a salesperson to come, that person could very well be showing hot sauce, what you call hot sauce, we call upsells items. The measure up technician, the guy doing the layout when the customer comes in to view their slabs, if, if you have that mentality that everybody actually is a salesperson, you've just, you've multiplied. You've multiplied. And, and, and I'll tell you, Aaron, I think one of the things that we do and what we suggest when we talk to fabricators about, uh, about selling hot sauce is, you know, as owners and managers, 
we're always asking our employees to do things, right? Like, hey, I need you to do this, or hey, can you do that for me? And the reality is our employees do it because they're awesome people. And I think everybody in their job description says, hey, here are the things you're responsible for. Oh, and anything else that the owner says, right? <laughs> so they do it. What's really cool about hot sauce is if everybody has this, you know, a sales mentality is, hey, if you go ahead and sell this chip minimizer or this edge upgrade or any of the other 48 things that we offer, guess what? I'm going to pay you for it. Hmm. So every time you sell a chip minimizer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you $25. So our measure techs, you know, they all sell about one a day. Hmm. Well, one a day at $25 a day is $6,600 a year in just a commission by doing their job and talking about some extra things. Hmm. So they're happy, the company's happy, and the customer's happy because they got something else to protect or to add on to their investment. It's hmm. one of those truly win-win-win scenarios. Yeah, and, and, and that begins to kind of fill in the blanks in terms of how your company has achieved the kind of results that it's achieved when, you, when you're engaging. We, we talked about this before on, on the podcast. You know, a lot of owners perceive that their employees don't have an ownership mentality or why don't my, why don't my employees think like me? Well, you've, you've never given them the opportunity. You've never shared your thoughts about what an owner, you know, how an owner thinks or what it is you're thinking or what it is you expect from them. And what you're saying is that you've got, a whole bunch of people in your enterprise that are thinking like owners and how different would a business be if half the people had that in their mind and understood the opportunity and the potential there uh, it says so much about the business side of, of, you know, your operation or what's possible in a stone shop. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, I think, I think it all stems from, we always like to say that the fish rots from the head down, meaning that ownership and management have to set the tone for the company. And you've got to start with understanding your metrics, right? So you might be a great fabricator, what we call technician. You can make a great countertop, but if you own that shop, you need to be the owner. And then you need to go hire great people and then let them be great. And I think what a lot of owners do is they hire great people and then they kind of put their thumb on them and micromanage them to mediocrity. And you know, there's this phrase, that says people don't leave bad companies, they leave bad managers. Hmm. And I think that's true. And I think the challenge with small uh, companies, and if we're just talking about fabricators, for, exa for example, a lot of times that owner, right, is the guy that's also managing every single department. Yeah. And if he doesn't know his metrics, if he doesn't understand what right looks like, you know, if you go in to many employees and you say, hey, how was your day today? Did you do a good job? Most employees are going to say, well, I didn't get yelled at today. So, yeah, it was a good day. <laughs> the reality is, did they really have a good day in the eyes of the owner? You know, if they were supposed to polish or finish or cut 150 square feet, did they do that? And if there's three guys and one guy did 150 square feet and one guy did 100 and one guy did 50 square feet, well, they all can't think that they did a good job. And so understanding metrics and understanding the output and the throughput of your company, I think, is key. Once owners understand that, right, then adding things like hot sauce and having an everybody sells mentality has a massive impact on a company. Yeah, everybody's thinking like the owner and the results speak for themselves. Right. Uh, well, and you're, you know, when I heard you say you've been in at least 150 fab shops and have spoken to over 500 different fabricators, uh, you're, you're speaking from firsthand knowledge. And, and so I just want to say once again, what uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. I guess I'm stumbling over myself. I just, I just want you to know how much I appreciate what you've shared. 
so openly and so willingly, you know, with uh, with the audience of the Fab Lab podcast, and more spe- more specifically with with Wes and I, you know, we're we're in this boat too. We got a Fab shop. We're you know we're it is a hard business. It's a tough business, and um, and so every time we have the opportunity to learn from somebody who's been there, and then not only has proven that it can be done, is willing to you know open up the books, open you know pull back the curtain, and and actually share so that we can benefit from it. I just um, very grateful. And uh, well, listen, I, I appreciate it, and 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 we love we love sharing it. A lot of these things, truthfully, we've learned because we've made the mistakes. Hmm. You know, look. Remakes and reworks are one of the single biggest problems that fabricators have. You know, cost of goods and labor are your two biggest items on your profit and loss statement. And you know what reworks and remakes do? They negatively affect both of those, mm-hmm. right? And, and so many fabricators don't even track their remakes and reworks. As I travel the country and I do a lot of these speaking engagements, I always ask that question because I'm trying to gauge who's really involved in their business. And what I always tell people, for anybody who doesn't raise their hand, meaning they're not tracking, I said, if you take one thing away of anything I've told you, go back to your shop tomorrow and start tracking reworks and remakes and start figuring out root cause. Because when you can do that, you will get better. (laughs) I just got this two days ago from my install manager. Ouch. Yeah, it's painful. (laughs) I look, when we start, when we started tracking, we've probably been tracking now for 12 years and we first started tracking it. I looked at my business partner, Bill, and I said, Bill, we're really terrible at making countertops. We kind of suck at this. So we've got two options. We've invested a lot of money. We've got a bunch of employees. We either got to go figure this out or give up. Well, give up's not in our vocabulary. So we went to go figure it out. And it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dedication. But, you know, if it's important to me, then it becomes important to my employees. And so people will respect what you inspect, which is kind of one of my favorite phrases. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be totally honest with you, you know, for us, one of the challenges that we had was first time quality leaving the shop. You know, when you bid a job, you only bid it to measure it once, to fabricate it once, to install it once. And so for me, it needed to leave the shop 100%. We weren't great at that. So we started creating some sort of quality control program that had to have accountability. And we ended up building a software called Speed Label that did all that. So every single piece, has a picture uh, of, of the actual part with dimensions. We actually have it tied into Moreware, which is, we're a big supporter of Moreware and the user. So all the information uh, populates onto the label. And that label now is on every single piece. And at every station, we've got one of our employees quality controlling, checking dimensions, checking sink cutouts, and signing their name to it. And I'm telling you, our first time quality is at an all-time high right now. It's wow. been a game changer for us. Wow, that is fantastic. Well, before we, we start wrapping things up, you know, again, I just, I, I, I'm astonished at that to, to think what it would take the investment that you've made to go visit 150 fab shops and to take the time to talk to 500 fabricators. I, I just want to give you the opportunity. What, what else, what else do you think the average fabricator needs to hear in terms of running their business better, more effectively uh, than, than may be the case right now? I think the single biggest challenge I think that fabric that owners have is when I talk to them about some of the operational things that they're doing. And I say, well, why are we doing it this way? You should, you know, here's a, here's a proven way of doing things. And they say, well, we've tried that, but my employees just won't listen. And I, I take offense to that as a business owner, because your employees rely on you to be great. 
they rely on you to manage and own a profitable business. So if you are doing things that your employees really aren't following through, then you need to sit down with them and find out what their constraints are, what their challenges is, because maybe they have some really good feedback, but then you need to work through that. And then you all have to work together as a team. And I feel like there's too many times where ownership and management are talking at their employees and not talking with their employees because your employees on the front line, your employees in the shop, they're going to give you a great feedback. Yep. They may not know how to solve the problems, but they certainly know ways to help with the solutions. And I think fabricators and owners need to do a better job of that. Yeah, very well. They're the closest to the problem. And very often their input's not invited. And, uh, but I think more, who wouldn't be willing to offer their input if, if it was asked? So that's exactly correct. And I yeah. think your employees are starving for that. I think they want every one of your employees, right? My employees every day come in and they want to do a good job. Yes. They don't want. I'm, they, I'm, pounding, right? the desk. I'm pounding the desk. Right. Can you hear it? Yeah. They don't walk in, go, man. I'm really going to screw some things up today. They want to come <laughs> in and go, man. I want to do some great things. Yeah. But do they know what it looks like? Do they know what right looks like? Yes. You know, if I go, sometimes I go into fab shops, right, and I see the disconnect, and I go to the owner. I said, you know, you've got three guys here hand polishing, and I said, uh, you know, if I ask these guys to fix a chip. And I asked him each independently, I think I'd get three different responses back. One guy is going to say, well, Jeff said fix the chip. That means he wants it perfect. At every angle with the light, he can't see it. The second guy might think, all right, I need to fix that chip. And what Jeff really means is I need to go find that little piece that came out, and I'll just kind of glue it back in. And the third guy just says, Jeff just wants smooth. I'm just going to fill it in with color to key me. And so the problem is now the owner gets upset with that. But the reality is we haven't probably provided the right training. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. So I think that's a problem. My only other uh, one comment, and this is really more of an operational side that I would really urge and encourage every fabricator to take incredibly seriously is there is a problem right now with silica and with silicosis. And it is, it is now coming to the United States. And so while you don't have to be an automated shop, you must be fabricating wet. Yep. And there are no more options anymore. And because it, there are now proven cases where this can be challenging. And so I would ask if you don't know how to go do that, reach out to local authorities. You can reach out to OSHA. You can, there are plenty of uh, industry experts out there. If you're a um, member of the Natural Stone Institute, uh, they have a lot of uh, great information on there. But I would urge you to start focusing on that as a company. That, that is some, that, that article by NPR, Nell, what's her name, Wes? We've reached out to, we've actually tried to contact her to interview her on the podcast because that is such a, it is so important that that message gets out because I, a couple of years ago, and I know we're kind of going off of the, the sales topic here, but you brought it up. Uh, the Slippery Rock Gazette asked me to write some articles on that. And so I reached out to OSHA, had him come in. And, and, and so I began to kind of. Your mic came undone. Okay, as that, I got, I started flailing my arms again. There you go. That's better. And and so the industry people I talked to were downplaying it. They, they were they were saying, no, this is this is a masonry industry problem. This is a sandblasting industry plot problem. Countertops have just got lumped into it. But this article is very explicit. They have traced actual deaths from silicosis to countertop fabrication, and more specifically to the quartz because it's so much higher in silica content. So I. I absolutely agree with you 100%. This is no longer, 
what do you foresee from your perspective? How, how does this play out? You know, actually, what I think is going to happen, I think it's, there's, there's several positives that are going to come out of this. Number one, it's going to uh, force fabricators that aren't following the current uh, OSHA laws. It's going to force them to get in line. Uh, I think you're going to see a little bit of a shrinking of the industry. Uh, you know, and my hope is I, ha I have this pipe dream, this global dream that at some point, maybe there's some sort of certification or licensing that happens in our industry because it doesn't exist today. And, and the cost of entry to get into this industry, truthfully, is really low. I mean, you could have a pickup truck and a grinder and you could call yourself a fabricator, but we know that, that there's challenges that come with that. So, you know, I think as the industry continues to mature over the next 24 months, you might see a little bit of a, a shrinking, which again, if we go back to selling you know, for what our value is, you know, less fabricators, but more sophisticated fabricators might allow all of us to sell at a little bit higher price, make more margin and continue to do the right things and create wealth for ourselves. And create wealth. Like you said, it's not, it's not a greedy position. It's, it's a reality position to be in, in business. And uh, that's fascinating. Well, you know, let's, let's start winding this down. This has been such an informative, uh, such a thorough conversation on this topic. I just want to recap really quick. Fellow fabricators, stone shop owners, uh, we have heard, I don't know what you would charge to go and consult with somebody to tell them this, but, but the value of, that you've shared is, is, is extraordinary. So I just want to recap here. Number one, whether we like it or not, we have to see ourselves as salespeople. If you own a stone shop, you're not a fabricator. Uh, you're a manufacturer. You're a sales organization. You are a business. And that requires of you dealing with, frankly, the issues that you've talked about today, Jeffrey. So that's number one. We got to see ourselves how we are. Our mindset may have to change. We got to get out of this old school way of, I'm just a fabricator. No, you're a sales organization. You're a business and you're a manufacturing company. Number, number two, we got to believe that there is actual margin available, that customers are willing to pay more for the things that they value. It's true. If you don't believe it's true, you're not going to take advantage of the principle that Jeffrey has shared here, offering additional service and products that have low cost of goods, but high impact on the bottom line. So you got to start believing that customers will open their wallet if you're willing to show them things that they might consider valuable with their project. And number three, we have got to be aware of the, the reality of silicosis, the danger, the risk that it, that it poses to our, our employees and, and, and not ignore it, not downplay it, not hope that it goes away. Um, we got to face that head on and deal with it. Just like you were saying, uh, uh, employees and, and them being the most significant asset in the business, we have to take care of our people. So fellow fabricators, I hope you have enjoyed this interview, this conversation. Really, we've just sat back and listened to this, uh, this icon of the industry, Jeffrey Grant, with so many different uh, uh, businesses within the industry. Again, owner, Countertop Factory Midwest, Fifth Gear Technologies, and Ignite Consulting Group. Jeffrey, how do people get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more about you, your company, and uh, the things that you're doing right now for the industry? So anybody can reach me uh, at uh, ggran at tcfmidwest.com. If folks are interested in uh, improving their bottom line immediately, they can go to our website, hotsauceyourtops.com. Uh, and we can set up a demo and, and show you how to start using and selling hot sauce to your, to your existing customers. Hmm. 
Fantastic. Jeffrey, thank you so much for taking time out. Hearing your, your travel schedule, uh, you, this, is, this is significant that you would take time to be with us. And so I just want to say on behalf of the Fab Lab podcast and the audience, thank you for this opportunity to talk with you today. Hey, I love it. And uh, I wouldn't miss this for the world. And you guys are the best. Keep up, keep up the great work. This is, this is pretty amazing stuff. Stay warm in Chicago, and I hope you get to Aruba soon. All right. I love it. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the interview with Jeffrey Grandwest. That was something. Wow, I really enjoyed that. I really liked sitting there and just listening to what he had to say. Yeah. And being the producer of the Fab Lab podcast, I go through and edit this. And the first time hearing the hearing it, you, you learn a lot. But then you go through and edit, and you're like, there's a lot more content here that you can't digest just listening to it one time. Yeah. It's like sitting through a semester in school <laughs> in one hour. Yeah. You, you got to listen to it multiple times because there's a lot of valuable, great information from Jeffrey in there. Yeah, it's like a master's in business. I mean, literally, from a professor who has done it. And, and so, ladies and gentlemen, this clearly, the, the value of what he just shared is in the thousands of dollars. And so, Wes, mm-hmm. to your point about going back and re-listening to it and, and, and having some time to digest it and then revisiting it again, those principles, those last three points that were reviewed at the end of the episode, or at the end of the interview, rather, are significant transformational truths about the business. And so, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is evergreen content, as they mm-hmm. say in the podcast world. Listen to it again. Listen to it again. This is this is just meat and potatoes that will impact and, and in some cases transform your business. So, man, yeah, I consider that a major privilege to have that conversation. I learned a lot. I will be listening to it again, and I'll be sharing it. Yep. I, I think there's a lot. I find it very valuable, and I know a lot of other people like I work with will find it useful as well. Yeah, and so just, I didn't even mention this to you while we were getting ready to prepare to record this, but in talking to the sales manager today, they've started implementing this very same principle that came from a conversation I had with Jeffrey prior to us doing this interview, which was why we decided to do the interview. (laughs) And we are absolutely killing it. We are adding significant dollars to jobs that previously was just slipping through our fingers. It's, it works. I'm here to tell you real time, fellow fabricators, Wes, it works. People will pay more for that which they value as long as they understand it's available to them. Mm-hmm. So ladies and gentlemen, man, listen to this again and, and know that this is, this is stuff that's going to work and impact your business. Beyond that, make sure you visit AaronCrowley.com. Now, again, we didn't talk about this before we interviewed Jeffrey. He mentioned the book, The Goal. Uh, if you go to AaronCrowley.com, scroll to the bottom page, you will see the top three business books that impacted me as a business owner. The E-Myth, The Toyota Way, and, as you might guess, The Goal by Eliehu Goldratt. You can actually read my summary of that book, and you can also buy a copy of it through AaronCrowley.com. And while you're there, you can also check out Less Chaos, More Cash. It's also available at AaronCrowley.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, fellow fabricators... Fans of the Fab Lab podcast, Wes, what a privilege it's been to be together with you all again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fab Lab podcast, and I hope that you'll tune in next week for another episode. Until then, happy fabricating. Boom. And I just have one comment. Wes, you're way too talkative. <laughs>